you have the dubious distinction of being the guest on the hundredth episode of the Agro Innovations podcast. So, um, oh wow, yeah, very dubious. <laughs> I, I appreciate being dubious. <laughs> Hello and welcome to episode number 100 of the Agro Innovations Podcast, all things related and debated in agriculture. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. This episode of the podcast has been released onto our website, agroinnovations.com slash podcast, on Monday, August 9th, 2010. For this 100th episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast, I am joined for an extended conversation by Darren Doherty. And early on in this interview, there is some chainsaw noise, uh, but that dies down pretty early on, so just bear with that. And considering some of the topics we are discussing, uh, the chainsaw noise is not at all inappropriate. On this episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast, we are joined by Darren Doherty. Darren is a permaculture designer and a consultant who has designed and implemented permaculture systems around the world. He is an expert in key line design, broadacre permaculture, and agroforestry. Darren Doherty, welcome to the Agro Innovations Podcast. Thanks, Frank, and I uh, really appreciate um, you having this program and um, for interviewing me today. Okay, many innovative agricultural practices have come out of Australia, which at first glance may be a bit surprising when we consider the relatively low population density and uh, relative isolation of the country. What is it about Australia that has made it a source of such innovation in agriculture? Yeah, this is not an unusual question, um, at least in the permaculture holistic management field. And um, I believe it's a it's a question of feedback. It's also a question of, um, it's an outcome of our country's very low mineral status um, as compared to both the old and new world um, of the United States and um, the old world in, uh, in parts of um, Europe, etc., where... Um, you've had glaciation and you've had um, min mineralisation events and uh, geological renewal um, en masse. Whereas in Australia, a little bit of volcanism here and there, but um, by and large, um, you know, a lot of the landscapes we're working with have been out of the ocean for, you know, five, six, seven hundred million years plus, some areas even longer. So when the... Uh, when, when the Europeans came to Australia and, and basically, especially the English, um, used their methods of management on our landscape, um, they rebut our landscape rebutted very, very quickly. And so it was a matter of, well, was Australia going to be abandoned as a place in which to grow and, uh, and live? Or were we going to have to come up with things? And um, so the response was, especially being an island people, um, that uh, that we came up with things like permaculture, that we came up with things like um, that we adopted the soil conservation strategies of the US Army Corps of Engineers almost at the same time as the Army Corps of Engineers came out. That we that PA Yeomans developed the, the key line system in the late 40s and early 50s. Um, that we then developed in the 1980s coming out of permaculture, um, the land care movement, which is now perhaps the most pervasive 
uh, land management, you know, community directed and owned and developed land management um, project on the planet. Um, you know, every Australian farmer, more or less, is a member of a land care group. Um, so, so there's, I think it's it's around those issues as to why it's it's a re- response to the peculiarities of the Australian continent and case, and um, as a result, um, you know, we've had to come up with these things. Otherwise, we're gone. And it's really a precursor, Frank, to what is going to happen and what is already starting to happen in other parts of the world. And um, that's why people like myself um, get to work. I mean, I go to Spain and I go to the US and Mexico and all sorts of places where the feedback loops are, well, the chickens are coming home to roost. Let's just put it that way. As you were saying, um, the chickens are coming home to roost in other parts of the world, and these feedbacks are starting to tell us this. Um, Mm. What can we expect to see based on what was seen in Australia? What are we seeing, and um, how do you expect people are going to react to this? Well, I think think we've actually accelerated um, the whole process by the use of um, artificial fertilisers and, of course, herbicides in cropping areas. But um, artificial um, fertilisers in grazing areas have um, basically um, done a job, so to speak, on the the biology of the soil and um, and with particular, particularly poor grazing management, or I'll, I'll use the word management in inverted commas, um, let's just say laissez-faire grazing practices um, and artificial fertilisers on grazing country and then on cropping country, constant cultivation using massive machines, herbicides, all sorts of um, antibiotic um, compounds have uh, accelerated the decline of agricultural landscapes across the world where where before their mineralization and their and 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 their uh, biological integrity um, was able to somewhat withstand um, deficiencies in their management now that of course as holistic management people would understand depends a lot on the humidity provenances um, that exist within those landscapes. But you put all of that together and you really, st- especially in, now we're talking about humid landscapes starting to um, suffer significant declines, it's because of our insult, I think, um, on those on those landscapes, uh, on the biology of those landscapes, and that's what's really causing it now. Yeah. I mean, I've worked in places where there is no excuse, really, um, you've got beautiful, deep, rich soils, but there's an absence of biology. Um, and um, the soils are tremendously compacted and, uh, and um, you know, it's very, very difficult for farmers to, to get any um, income out of or crop out of those situations because of so much compaction, so little biology, etc. So it's, it's a hard one. So that's what's happening elsewhere, I think. Yeah, and this is, it seems like the norm in many places around the world. It's very uh, disturbing to see this. We won't dwell on it too much because um, no. because uh-huh. the people who listen to this are very we- well aware of the critique of industrial Shh. agriculture. Sure. Um, so, but one thing I did want to talk about, you're a vocal critic of the term sustainability. 
Tell yeah. us why you think this is a poor term for describing the objectives of permaculture. Well, I often, uh, when I talk about it, I, um, a friend of mine from Ohio said to me once we were talking about this, and he said, yeah, I agree with you. Um, I, uh, he said, uh, if someone was to ask you how your marriage, was your marriage sustainable, um, then, <laughs> you know, you, if your wife, particularly if your wife was in the room uh, or your husband was in the room, it, um, it wouldn't be such a good answer to say yes. Um, and that's, that's a humorous take on it. But really, um, permaculture, it was always founded on, um, on the belief that, uh, well, on the, on, the, on the reality that nature is not actually sustainable. It's actually regenerative um, that there's... That, that, that things that are in perpetual motion, which is what um, nature is with the input of sunlight, um, is it's a perpetual machine and it's a regenerative perpetual machine because when something's regenerative, it actually gets better um, with the input, inputs that, are, that have been uh, um, applied to it and that there's some sort of residue to, to the activity. So sustainability is really about treading water. Um, it's energy in for energy out. And so if I, if I was to, to use the metaphor of money, if I took $20 in, then I'd have $20 go out. And that would be sustainable. If it was degenerative, um, then it would mean that I would get $20 in, I would spend $30, or I would spend $20 and have a negative Inc, uh, a negative effect on the environment as a result of that activity. If it was a regenerative activity, um, then that would mean that I'd get $20 in and I might spend 15 and I would have five left behind, plus the activity itself would actually um, ensure that the, that the system was getting better. And that's what we're talking about when we're talking, in my belief, when we're talking about um, things like holistic management, permaculture, etc., it's a it, it comes from an energetic understanding or an understanding of energy. Um, you really need to understand energy, the embodied energy in things, and um, and how much what are, what are the energy flows that go through a system in their totality holistically. Um, and that's that's why I don't at all promote the idea of sustainability if. If the Earth functioned on the rules of science sustainability, we'd be going absolutely nowhere. It functions on the rules of regeneration. Sure, we'd probably still all just be bacteria or something like that. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's not sustainability is not very ambitious. So <laughs> well, yeah. uh, you mentioned P.A. Yeomans, and he is someone who yeah. has certainly inspired and influenced your work. Tell us sure. who he was and how has his life and work influenced your own? Yeah, the more I find out about him, the, um, the more that's uh, amazing about him. Um, and I'm really sad that I missed out on meeting him because apparently he was a fairly uh, big character. Um, Yeomans um, was a mining engineer, developer, um, builder. He did a lot of different things. He was, you know... A man of his time, um, an entrepreneur who uh, who was uh, largely self-taught and um, and but but obviously very clever, bright person. Um, grew up in um, 
grew up in the country um, and then uh, developed an interest in mining, um, as I understand it. He, uh, as far as Keyline was concerned, um, he bought a farm because uh, he thought that was interesting. So he was, by his own admission, a, um, a uh, gentleman farmer. Um, but... And he described it as being, well, his energy put into it um, from a key line perspective ongoingly was that it was more, you know, some of his friends were playing golf. He, he thought that um, owning a farm was much more interesting, better use of his time. So, <laughs> but to put it, to put his, I think he was um, self-deprecating, which is part of the Australian character. He uh, actually had an amazing business and... Um, and an amazing outlook in that he not only developed his farm um, using some of his own methods and that that he took from others um, and adapted from others, but he also had an array of businesses which were built around that. Now, that's a precursor in a way to a lot of the stuff that, say, Bill Mollison, um, who uh, recommended in his permaculture philosophy, where... You know, you don't you don't just be a farm. You also be a, um, a you sell the products directly, or you you deliver consulting services, or you do this, that, and the other, so that you have a few more strings to your bow. And Yeoman's was a really good exponent of that. Um, and uh, you know, he had a he, and and he had a very vertically integrated business in that. He had um, involvement in the media. He had a Keyline magazine in the 1950s, he, um, which was a national magazine and very well advertised um, or had a good coterie of advertisers in it, including his own product lines. Um, he sold a lot of products to agriculture in terms, but they were not so much fertility um, su supplying products. They were more products around how to develop your farm around the key line principles. So he developed um, particular plows, for example, non-inversion plows. Um, he developed a... Um, he used to sell levels um, that he made himself. Um, he used to sell all sorts of stuff. And then he made other machinery as he went along, which um, were all built around the idea and notion of um, the key line way of farming, you know, a regenerative water, soil-centred practice of agriculture. Um, plus, he also had a design business. So he used to go and, um, with, with some underlings, um, would uh, go and design people's properties. And he did many, many properties. And Look, I, I, the more I probe into his work, the more I appreciate um, how organised a person he must have been to have managed so many things um, at once and left such a residue as a result of, um, of on, on the Australian landscape at the very least because a lot of you go... It's not uncommon to drive around Australia and see if you know what you're looking for, the residues of his work. It was very pervasive. Um, and uh, I think of how, how, how much he did without emails and without the internet, you know, without fax machines or any of that sort of thing, um, how much he did in such a relatively short amount of time was just phenomenal. Um, 
and it wasn't just and and that people actually followed his work so they'd buy his books and they'd adapt um his um techniques to their landscapes he did a lot of it so when i look at my own work um and i look at you know that of people like bill mollison and i look at alan savory and other sort of giants of the regenerative agriculture movement um i you know yeomans to me stands right up there in fact on top of um those people because there's there's just so much that's actually happened as a result of his advocacy and work. Well, uh, key line design is something that's quite visual. And there is a great video on YouTube where you are on the beach and have created a model watershed with some sand mm -hmm. to help people yeah. visualize the principles of key line. And actually, I'll, I'll yep. link to that uh, in the show notes for this episode so people can check that out. Um, mm -hmm. And that video really helped Keyline come together for me conceptually. Mm -hmm. um, if you would, without the aid of the sand on the beach, can you please explain <laughs> to the listeners some of the essentials of keyline design? Um, keyline, key for its time, um, was and still remains a, a relatively holistic um, landscape design um, and landscape development process. Um, the whole program is built around um, the soil and it's built around a uh, range of techniques but also an understanding of what yeomans called the key line scale of permanence and this is you know it comes from the psychology of a miner coming to agriculture as opposed to an uh, 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 as opposed to an agriculturalist coming to agriculture so he came at time to agriculture with a with a pretty um, set mind as to the functioning of the landscape as a miner does because a miner's job is to you know come in assess assess the site assess its water so that we can use it for washing tailings and uh, all of that and extract an ore body and uh, that's that's the job and you either do it by um by digging underground or you do it by um, digging a big big hole in the ground you make those assessments so yeomans when he came to agriculture sort of to my mind applied that sort of um thinking and the scale of permanence is what resulted the scale of permanence um is eight items and what it really fuses is in the human mind the orders of priority on the landscape and in development and it also if you look at it uh, it fuses um, in the mind um, how much influence we can readily uh, impose according to the scales of permanence so the thing that when we come to an environment that we have the least um, effect over um, is the climate um, if we come to a land and we think all right well here we are what is it is it tropical is it wet tropical is it dry tropical is it you know so on and so forth what climate zone just you know despite the efforts of humans over the last 150 or 300,000 years in changing the climate as a great human team effort you know largely the climate is what we get 
The second most thing, the second um, thing on the scale of permanence is the um, is the land shape. The land shape is a tremendously difficult thing to sh to change. You know, the mountains and the hills and the valleys, etc. You have to spend a lot of money on earthworks to change that. Those two, those first two items, then influence the third order on uh, third third point on the um, scale of permanence, which is water. The climate and the land shape largely determine how much water we have. And then we get down into, um, then we get to trees and then we get to buildings and we get to subdivision or fencing, um, all of those sorts of things. Um, and then we get, and roads, farm roads, which obviously um, need to, um, to be made and all of that. So that changes the land shape, changes the amount of water that we have, etc. So they're, they're sort of um, four, five, six, seven. Now, um, the eighth, eighth item on the scale of permanence is the soil. And the soil is the easiest thing um, that affects on the soil immediately. And um, so that was his main focus. Is, and and for, for me, it's still the same. Um, the soil, interestingly, um, has the greatest potential as far as the climate is concerned um, because of obviously the broken down carbon cycle, as Alan Savory would describe it, uh, where the, much of the carbon that's in, that used to be in the soil is now in the atmosphere or now in the oceans. There's dissolved carbonic acid. Um, so the, we, we have to engage the uh, photosynthesis, as Yeomans described, um, to, to get that uh, excess carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and put it back into the soil um, and get all of the benefits from that. Now, that, that also means, of course, that um, we improve the second order of item on the scale of permanence, which is the water situation. Um, because if we build more soil, then we build more water. And when we build the capability of all of the other items that, uh, that are within that scale of permanence. So when we talk about Keyline, we talk about a lot of tools and we talk about a lot of techniques for accelerating those various processes. But what we're really talking about, I think, is the scale is front and centre is enacting um, and understanding the scale of the key line scale of permanence. Um, the other part of it is the patterning that Yeomans was able to um, develop. Now, this is a very technical part of it, and I believe um, because it was quite technical and because a lot of people don't understand landscapes and topography, etc., it's much understood, much misunderstood, and also uh, much um, a lot of people have put so-called key line systems in and it's um, and they haven't been it at all because they just haven't understood or haven't had to explain to them effectively um, the geometry of key line it's very simple it is very simple once you understand it but you have to have a bit of an understanding of topography um, and understand how to read maps etc before you can enact it so um, Yeomans was able to identify as a mining, as a miner, geography, uh, particular elements of the geography um, that were reoccurring in um, in foothills topography, and 
in the in his so-called primary valleys, which are the valleys which are the first um, concentrated uh, water um, flow in a landscape, um, there is a point where um, the landscape in that valley, which starts at the saddle and then goes through the rill and then goes through the runnel and then be, then gets to a point called the key point of the of that primary valley. That primary that that point in the primary valley is also where relative where the slope changes, um, such that it goes from being a more convex slope to a more concave slope. And he found that they repeated um, throughout the landscape. Now, he also found that when you actually ran a contour line through that point, that it was a different-looking contour to those above and below it, which um, appeared to be somewhat flatter contours. This was uh, a bit more obtruse. And that when you ploughed parallel to that, um, that pattern, that key line contour within that valley, that because of its ang different angle to the contours above and below it, it actually forced water out towards the ridge. Now, that was a fairly um, big insight um, in terms of the way that humans um, can adjust the movement of water in the landscape such that um, it's, it, it is retained in the landscape and it, and it rehyd and it directs water, ex as he called it, excess water from the um, valleys out to the to the ridges, which are typically less hydrated. So, yeah, so that's that. You know, and then there's the systems of dams which he you know placed. You know, the key point is the highest point in the landscape um, in a valley where you can uh, usually effectively and economically create a dam or a pond, as the Americans call them, um, for livestock or livestock water or irrigation water. Um, he directed roads, he um, directed um, um, fences and irrigation and diversions of divert, you know, water harvesting strategies, etc., to actually follow the topographical uh, or the top the topography of a landscape as opposed to just putting them anywhere anywhere he liked um, yeoman's uh, said in a in a radio interview which I was able to procure um, that it's common that the only fence that a farmer gets right is the boundary fence <laughs> which uh, you know which is a fairly telling statement into um, you know how he felt about a lot of the development that um, people had uh, done over time. Yeah. So yeah, water and soil are the focus of Keyline, and um, respecting and enhancing the patterns of topography on uh, all landscapes, which were then obviously adopted by um, by the permaculture movement, um, but unfortunately not totally understood and as a result uh, a lot of uh, permaculture um, sites that apparently use keyline or name keyline have not done it at all um, they clearly have not understood it at all been a bit of chinese whispers you could say well uh one of the things interesting about keyline is i um picked up some aerial photos and started looking at some photos at some 
mountains and some valleys that I have done some work in in mm -hmm. South America. And actually, mm -hmm. it turns out you can fairly, once you know what to look for, you can kind of see where the key line falls on some of these valleys just by looking at aerial photos. Now, that's no substitute for ground truthing, obviously, but um, it's, it's a good way to kind of play around with some ideas. And one of the first things I noticed was uh, at the kind of scale that Yeomans was thinking about, um, in a South American context, you are going through many, many different um, tenure relationships mm -hmm. as you move along that key line. Um, and that is one of the things you didn't mention in your eight levels of permanence. Mm -hmm. I wonder what your thoughts are in terms of uh, some of these ownership issues mm -hmm. and the scale that uh, for key line to be effective on, on is requ that's required mm -hmm. and how this kind of plays so out when you have all these different owners. When Yeomans developed the key line scale of permanence, I, I, I agree with you. There was no mention of people or society or anything. And that's why I would suggest that it wasn't totally holistic, you know, not in the context of holistic management, um, um, which Alan Savory et al. have developed. And, and it was, you know, it was a system of its time. Um, and that's part of my ministry, if you like, is to, is to include all of these different methodologies together and integrate them and that's you know that's what permic to me permaculture is about and that's what holistic management is about i mean you you use the holistic management decision making tools um built around your holistic goal and then you um and then you look at each situation and you have a toolbox of a whole array of different tools and keyline is but one of them um it's very, you know, there's many different techniques within Keyline and you will pick up a, if you need a 17 millimetre socket, well, then you'll pick it up for that if, if you've got a 17 millimetre nut. It's pretty well the way it works. But you'll evaluate that holistically. So I think that's the big gift that, I think it's one of the great gifts that Alan Savory and the holistic management movement have, um, have given to this. That, that said, also um, the key the key line scale of permanence is is very much about the physical landscape um, as opposed to the holistic landscape that includes society and its species, not just us. Um, so yeah, I've I've actually worked um, to get to your other, your main part of your question. I've worked in a lot of areas um, where there's a lot of small, small, so-called small holders, and I've looked at those landscapes because the landscapes are the same everywhere in the world. But it's the way people have assembled themselves in varying degrees of intensity that are different, and there's different tenures and all of the rest of it, as you mentioned. And how do we appropriate? Um, key line systems into those systems. Well, I think again, we need to get back to the root of understanding what those communities actually want and need as, as communities. Um, do they, you know, is key line a tool or are key line techniques tools which are appropriate to have in their toolbox? Um, that's, I think, the greater question that needs to be applied because if if, for example, they did want to have a community water project, for example, um, a community irrigation project, uh, well, then, of course, key line um, systems would be the first cab off the rank in terms of doing that. Now, I, I, should, go, I should go back on that, though, and say that the first cab off the rank is getting the whole 
um, water cycle, water and mineral cycles restored before you actually then impose um, uh, landscape changes such are um, some of the techniques out of key line. So building dams and building diversions and irrigation systems and all of the rest of it. You know, the first place and the cheapest place to store water is actually in the, in the, in the soils and the vegetation types that, um, that are involved in those systems. So, um, so there's a variety of existing examples of where people have had similar systems um, appropriate on landscapes around the world. And I know in Vietnam they did, and um, Thailand, for example, in Arabia, in Spain, um, places like that, um, these sorts of communal um, irrigation systems have, um, have been around for a while. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the Keyline Plough, which is a non-inversion plough developed by Yeomans. And um, mm -hmm. one of the things that's striking about some of the um, materials and presentations that you do is all of the agricultural implements that have been developed in Australia by creative farmers that are looking to meet specific needs. Can you talk about some of these um, implements and plows and um, appropriate technologies that you have seen and that you have worked with and, um, you know, maybe comment on that a little bit? Yeah, implements. Um, yeah, so we've got a few that are, have been not so good. Um, the rotary hoe is uh, a fairly destructive piece of uh, of work. Um, uh, the post hole digger the, uh, has been useful. The uh, combine harvester, which was um, developed um, just you now, the in my particular region, the rotary hoe, the combine harvester, and the power harrow were all developed, and then uh, over time. And uh, all of those have had, uh, with the exception of the uh, post hole digger, have, um, have uh, had, I would say, a fairly deleterious effect on global agriculture and soils to an extent. And as enabled in the case of the combine harvester, yeah, it was good at the time, but it caused a massive expansion of, um, of cultivated agriculture which then allowed populations to get much larger, et cetera, et cetera. So there are some machines out there that have been in Australia that have been developed, which um, perhaps weren't so useful in the end. Um, with the key line plough, um, Yeomans um, adapted this whole idea from the Graham home chisel plough, which was um, built out of uh, uh, Amarillo in Texas um, and was used a lot and um, as part of the push for soil conservation in the US. Um, and, you know, that's what he used for most of his work. Um, not, I wouldn't say a non-inversion implement, but something that uh, in the way that he used it in pastoral systems and in the patterns that he used it in pastoral systems um, enabled um, compaction to be broken, um, although much more aggressively um, in terms of surface disturbance than the, uh, than the key line plough, um, which it ultimately came to be developed, which is a rigid tined implement with a very narrow um, shank um, or tine such that when it cuts through the ground, the disturbance is absolutely as, mi is as minimal as it can be. But kind of like an earth-moving ripper, um, 
but not as aggressive in the uh, in the angle of the point because um, they're actually designed for disturbance. So you know, an earth moving ripper, the bulldozer rips, then then reverses and then pushes the ripped material up to to uh, into a, into a fill. The idea with the key line plough is to not to do that at all. It's it's base. I would call it soil dynamic in the in the sense of being aerodynamic. In that, when it goes through the goes through the soil um, in the pattern of key line, which is distributing water from the valley towards the ridge, it does it um, very gently and removes that compaction. Which, if we leave uh, natural systems to um, themselves, um, can take a lot longer. So, it, it's a, it the machine is an expression of the permaculture principle of accelerating succession and evolution. Now, in, in uh, holistic management, uh, the technique of animal impact is often used, and it's a very effective one, um, especially in environments where um, income levels um, don't allow or, or uh, access to machinery and equipment doesn't allow you to, allow you to use a key lime plow or on slopes or places where there's too many woods or too many obstructions like rocks, etc., preclude you from being able to use machinery or the slope's too great. So this is, again, an example of a tool that's fit for a particular job in the landscape. And, and if you use a combination, as we found, of animal impact, key line ploughing, um, soil food web, biofertilizers, um, uh, comp, um, what do you call it, um, uh, cocktail or shotgun sh seed mixes or biological subsoilers, etc. You use those sorts of things in combination, then the soil building um, effects are uh, ab absolutely pronounced. And uh, when that's matched with uh, holistic management, grazing and, um, you know, and uh, pasture cropping, etc., then you really have a, a, a regenerative system on your hands. So the key line plough is just a tool that gets us to a place. It's not a. It's a. It's a. It's a means to an end, and the end is that we don't have to keep using this this tool on that landscape. That our management systems take over. So it's a machine that's different to others in that it has ultimately an obsolescence strategy. And uh, I, can't, I can't think of many other machines that humans use in agriculture which have an obsolescence strategy unless it's the obsolescence strategy is that we can't work on that land anymore because it has to be retired from agriculture. So, yeah, it's a pretty powerful bit of gear. And um, it, the when Yeomans developed it, uh, he... Um, he put a uh, what's called a shaker rotor on it, which again reduced the power requirement. It was an offset flywheel um, that was mounted onto the frame of the plough, and it put a pulse, a vibration, um, through the plough, so it so it acted like a jackhammer, and reduced the amount of power that it was re that was required to pull the implement through the ground. Um, and that was yeah, that was very very effective. They still sell them now. Um, we've we've taken it another step further because as permaculturalists, 
or as a permaculturalist, I'm always trying to get, extract the maximum value out of every litre of energy that I use. And so um, we've developed this thing called the, what we call the colloquially the um, Keyline Superplower. And it's long been a, um, a design of mine to make the Keyline Plough a much more effective bit of gear by um, uh, putting other, attaching other implements to it so that when the tractor passes over the ground, it's not just ploughing, it's also sowing or it's injecting biofertiliser or it's injecting microbes or injecting compost tea or um, sowing a variety of pastoral um, crops and or pastoral crops, grain crops direct, you know, in a pasture cropping fashion, etc. Um, so I've, I've, uh, I and um, a colleague, good, good friend and colleague of mine, uh, Ben Falloon, um, in uh, Victoria here, we, we actually built that machine um, and I think that's featured on the internet a bit now and um, works really, really well. So, and we'll, we haven't stopped there, we'll continue to develop it. You know, the yeoman's plough as such is, um, is, the, is the foundation implement to that. And yeoman's developed it as the, the only plough you would ever need. Okay, well, one of the things that uh, people who listen to this program are aware of is the concept of open source appropriate technologies. And that's mm -hmm. where technologies like what you are describing are um, really available for anybody to build and kind of do with what they will. Um, yeah. As you describe this Keyline Superplow, what are the prospects of people getting their hands on designs and uh, fabricating them wherever they may be in the world? That's a really good question. Um, I've been somewhat frustrated. This might get me into trouble, but I've been somewhat frustrated that um, that keyline ploughs aren't made all over the world, and um, that uh, that there you know that there haven't been licensing agreements and uh, all of the rest of it that have been developed, um, such that. Uh, you know, that only, I don't know how many ploughs are made, but it might only be 500 or 600 a year are actually made. And then if we look at all of the other very similar implements which are made here in Australia, which have been um, influenced by the keyline plough and are used in the same way as the keyline plough, then we might only be talking about 1,000, 2,000 implements a year. I mean, it's really not enough for the effort that we have to um, put in um, because it's one thing to work in uh, uh, landscapes in you know non-arable landscapes and we can use the techniques of um, holistic management plan grazing and then very effectively to get the results we need very quickly but it's in the arable landscapes which uh, where this sort of technology really comes into its own and, and can help us achieve that transition to more regenerative um, cropping systems etc so um, getting access to the keyline plow um, intellectual property is a very good question um, and as i understand it um, there's patents in force and um, so if you want to build a super, super plow you've got to buy a keyline plow or you've got to adapt one of the other machines which work very similar um, but again, you know, they're all products. They're not open source products. So perhaps people need to uh, maybe look at 
um, some of the uh, designs that are no longer patented and, uh, and use them for the key line player part of it. As for the cedar um, part of the, as for, the, you know, how we put the rest of it together, that's basic. And, you know, those, those designs in terms of seed boxes and in terms of um, compost tea or biofertiliser applications, etc., they are already relatively open source. There's, um, the seed box that we've got, I don't think, has any patents um, on it. So if, you know, if you're in Mexico and you wanted to copy a picture of that, uh, that particular thing, well, then you could probably go, you know, go down to your local um, shop and um, uh, fabricator and he'd maybe be able to make you something up, you know. Um, uh, that's, I've, I've seen that sort of thing occur all over the world and good on them. I think it's uh, the way to go. Um, if, people, if people aren't creative enough to uh, construct licensing agreements such that their intellectual property can be protected in some markets and taken advantage of, well, then that's their problem as far as I'm concerned. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm obviously a very open source type of person. I believe in it. I believe that if you invent something and you market something, that shouldn't be ripped off. But if you don't engage with people and create the faculty to enable things to be um, replicated in markets outside of your own, then don't be surprised if your good idea is just going to be copied. Um, it's just a fait accompli and um, yeah. You can go all over the world and see that. <laughs> That's right. And you don't I, see that. And yeah, I think if you, don't see, if you don't see it, you're not. You're not. You're, not, you're walking around with your eyes closed. To be quite honest, there, there's plenty of people who are, you know, wanting to get into these open source licensing agreements. And there's, you know, so much capacity to build these kinds of things all over the third world. It's um, it's kind of disheartening to think that we're not uh, as advanced as we need to be in that area. Well. Yeah, it's, I mean, and it's okay. There's a lot of people out there who talk about regenerative agriculture but don't talk about regenerative economics. And I, I, I think that the two are absolutely intertwined. And um, so if you are involved in regenerative agriculture, that's in effect a regen... It's, it's a um, open source practice by and large. And it, it is because people... People who are involved in regenerative agriculture are generally fairly open about it, and um, they want it, they wax lyrical about their various processes and successes, etc. They might write a book about it and they sell a few books. Well, that's that's great, but you know they also talk about it, and people people talk about what they're doing. They, you know, the concepts that they espouse sell themselves, and I don't think it's any different with economics in that um, if you're if you have an idea and a concept, sure, you should you should get you should get recompensed appropriately for your um, for your ideas and for your work and investment of capital. I don't have a problem with that at all. But at the same time, you've um, how much money do you need, and how you know. What, where is the greater good in all of this? Where's the regenerative capacity of your idea in the, in, in the context of um, regenerative energy systems and um, in regeneration itself? So I believe there's a new, 
there's a there's a new way of doing all of that sort of thing and um, I would to an extent community supported enterprises are doing that to a degree um, open sourcing of um, ideas and whatnot are uh, of um, open source patents I don't know if there's such a thing but you know um, that sort of thing is is great the Rodale Institute's um, crop roller for example is a great example um, of of this process I mean I, I think that they developed that internally. Um, you know, it was like a lot of things. It was an incrementally designed machine. There were lots of other crop rollers out there, but uh, ultimately they came up with their particular design, and then they got someone to do a CAD diagram of it, and then they put it online. And that's great. I mean, it only it only and everyone knows it is the Rodale crop roller. Now that's great because it only builds the imprimatur. The reputation of the Rodale Institute, and deservedly so, um, but it also means that now, you know, as I have, I've got I've got clients in Mexico who are making that machine, and they're making small versions of it. They're making ones that will go behind a donkey um, of the crop roller. So we'll now have um, <laughs> the Rodale crop roller going on behind a donkey, um, such that we'll be able to have no-till organic corn production up in the highlands of Mexico. I think that's a that's a fantastic outcome. And I think it would be great if someone came up with a with a little mini super plow. Um, that was a one shank machine that um, that enabled some of these um, subsistence farmers in a shared arrangement to uh, to um, have a small implement that allowed them with their with their draft animals to um, remove their compaction without turning the soil over in, in, um, inject some biofertilizer which they make in 44 gallon drums in their shed from their sheep cut from their animal carcasses and from their crop residues and all of the rest of it that they um, sowed seed directly with it. I mean, it's only going to mean that their quality of life improves as a result of having to spend less time in the environment and their environment will improve. Oh, sorry. Yeah. So yeah, there's, there's a lot to this, Frank, and I think it's a really good observation you've made there that um, and point that you've made that um, there's a lot of there's a lot more capacity in all of this. And that, that you know, your question is an example of what I would call regenerative thinking. Well, and it's also probably relevant to point out that the alternative to regeneration is perhaps annihilation. We don't want to, I just wrote an article yesterday about this, a short article about this and this whole point that we're already seeing the signs of what the de, of what of the implications of degenerative behavior are. And we don't want to go there. We just don't want to do it. I mean, it's, it's, it's certainly not a pathway that I find enticing. And, and when it's pointed out to people, um, you, you find that most people don't want to go there, but they need to know, they need to have people show leadership such that, um, that they know that there's actually an alternative that is not going to compromise their standard of living. In fact, it's going to only increase their standard of living and give them the things that they actually want out of life. So... Yeah, it's a, it's, but you know, people are coerced in interesting ways and um, and very creative ways, and um, by those concentrated uh, folks who um, who have a much more short term view. 
Well, and when something is free, be it the design for a plow or the Linux operating system, it oh. effectively mm. becomes invaluable. So um, I suppose that's another thing that we need to think about. But I want to ask you, what is Broadacre Permaculture? It's It's been described as an oxymoron um, because permaculture was originally intended to... Um, reduce the uh, impact of um, degenerative agriculture across the planet. So, you know, because most, as we know, as we all know now, most people on, on the planet are urbanised um, and, and um, agriculture has become a uh, mining operation um, to support um, the feeding of these people as if they're in a feedlot in the city. I mean, that's basically it. And permaculture's ideas originally were that we should um, increase the capacity for production of our, um, our, our needs in the environments in which we live as opposed to them being imported from outside. So, so that's... That, yeah, so that when we're talking about broadacre permaculture... Um, I think the what we're what we're really talking about is a broadacre transition um, to a better understanding. And I think the ultimate transition is 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 in the broader context is influenced and should be influenced by the practices of holistic management um, or the techniques of holistic management. So. Um, when I look around the world at um, what I'll call in inverted commas permanent agriculture systems, um, which are in a broader scale, um, I'll, I'll, I'll concentrate on a place like Spain where in Extremadura where they have the uh, famed uh, Dehesa system, which has been described as one of the most sustainable agricultural systems on the planet. It's been going for a very long time. Um, it adapted a system of local forest species into a local, now into a quite a sophisticated and uh, productive um, agricultural um, agroforestry system. It's basically um, cork oak and holm oak, Quercus suba and Quercus ilex, um, which are planted at a, a planted or retained from native you know, from existing vegetation um, at 20 to, to 50 meter spacings, um, and then you have pastoral systems. Unfortunately, mostly with annual based pastures underneath and um, sheep and cattle grazing of of the um, pasture with occasional cropping. Um, so they'll cultivate that pasture and then grow a crop occasionally. Um, and then um, pigs are brought in in the autumn to forage on the acorn for and then sold um, for ham and hamonibirica de biota, a very highly valued um, um, ham in Spain, the prosciutto of Spain. Now, that, that sort of system there... Um, I would stop short of saying that it's a broadacre permaculture because permaculture is a, is a design science. And so I have to question where is the design science in that system? No one's actually sat down 
and used a system of, first of all, ethics, so the ethics of permaculture, care of the earth, care of the people, return of surplus. Um, they're certainly implied in that system, um, but it's not consciously done. The other set is that they haven't used a set of design principles to design that system. So the trees are not put in any particular pattern. Um, there's not uh, there's not expressions of um, each element is supported by many other elements. Yet cattle and sheep and landscape shelter um, is provided by the um, um, by the retaining all of these quite large trees. But in terms of the cattle water systems, in terms of the human needs of the system, etc., haven't really been dealt with in a conscious design framework. Um, each element performing many functions. Well, yeah, there's a bit of that in terms of um, the trees perform multiple functions, um, as all trees do. But um, if we look at the whole template, it's it's only, it's one that I think is a fantastic one, and the world would be better. A lot of agricultural systems across the world, arable agricultural systems across the world, would benefit hugely from having this um, this uh, functional or greater, a higher, high functioning savanna landscape um, established, but you could take it to a lot further, a lot, a lot further, and that's what I call broadacre permaculture: is the adaptation of the principles and ethics of permaculture design, the design science, to agricultural scale, broader scale landscapes. That's really what it is all about. So, um, yeah. So you know, introducing agroforestry, applying applying um, holistic management uh, principles to the human systems and to the thinking and and um, decision making processes, and using the holistic some of the holistic management techniques, um, applying a whole range of key line um, techniques and methodologies. The the work of all of all of the fantastic people that have um, been before and are now with us um, who are developing uh, low-energy uh, uh, low solutions to um, managing the needs of a growing human population, especially in terms of food, growing food and fibre and timber. Um, whilst actually doing this in a regenerative um, framework with a low energy footprint, in fact, at the end, so, which is obviously a, a function of being regenerative. So that's what I call, I suppose, um, broadacre permaculture. That concludes the first part of my interview with Darren Doherty. For this episode of the podcast, because it is so rich in content, I'm going to create a separate blog post on the Agro Innovations blog that has some links, um, some videos of Darren Doherty on the beach describing Keyline. Um, so I will link to that on the show notes for this podcast, and that will be the only link, and all other links to Darren's website and um, some of the other things discussed in this podcast will be on that blog post. So be sure to check that out. Next week, uh, I will be concluding my conversation with Darren Doherty. Uh, that'll be about half an hour, and um, I will include some listener comments. And before I wrap up this 100th episode, I'd like to thank all of the guests who have participated in the Agro Innovations podcast for the previous 100 episodes. Um, I'd like to thank the community that has grown up around this podcast, 
people contributing, sharing their ideas, sharing suggestions, and just generally getting in touch with me and with other members of the podcast community. And I look forward to producing 100 or maybe 200, 300, 400 more of these podcasts so that we can continue to learn about permaculture, uh, holistic management, and many of the principles embodied therein. A reminder that this and all episodes of the Agro Innovations podcast are released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. To learn more about that, visit creativecommons.org. This is the Agro Innovations podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. Until next time, saludos. Saludos.